Um, yeah, so this evening we are going to continue with our series on the Psalms. There are 150 of them. No ways we're going to wake our way through all of that. Um, we'll probably just be able to get through four, maybe five. We'll see how we go. For those of you guys who weren't here last week, um, we introduced and look at, looked at some of the structure of the whole book of Psalms. Um, we often don't look at the book of Psalms as one unit. We often break them up into individual Psalms. But we noted that Psalms is divided into five parts. And there are themes that run through each part. Um, also, Psalms are made up of hymns of praise, songs of lament. They also contain poetry as well as prayers. We're going to be looking at one this evening. And also an array of different scenarios that get um, raised in the Psalms that makes the Psalms a really rich book. Um, and as I mentioned last week, it's not the kind of book that you can read through one time and then leave that um, as being done with. Psalms is really a book that carries us as followers of Jesus for the entirety of our lives. It's something that we always come back to. We always reflect on it in moments of great joy and in moments of sadness and lament. Um, the prayers that we encounter in the book of Psalms presents us with a full range um, of emotions, um, of great joy, of anxiety, but also of grief, also shame, guilt, and even anger. And we see expressions from those that we could call timid or reserved Psalms, um, all the way to those who display very expressive emotional experience, like, like Psalm 47 tells us to clap and shout loudly. Um, but throughout the Psalms, there's always this balance. Um, we are always brought back to a place that doesn't allow us to deny our emotions nor to be completely overrun by our emotions either. Um, and Psalms is really good at modeling that for us. So the Psalms teach us also in a very real sense to pray through our emotions. They help us to sort through our emotions and the challenges and the joys that we face in life um, and how all of this involves our relationship to God um, and how we place him. Where do we put God in those times of great joy? Where is he in those moments of grief? Psalms actually help us to work through that. And Psalms has been doing that for 2,500 years from one generation to the next, all the way up until ours and even those who will follow on after us. Now, this psalm we are going to unpack um, this evening helps us particularly to consider our fears and our anxieties. And what we will try to do is to look through the story 
that the psalm brings to us and its background. And we'll see how David, because it's one of David's psalms, how he processes his emotions and, and how he prays through his emotions and his fears and see how this models for us um, how we can pray through our fears and our anxieties. And so we're going to be reading or looking at Psalm 3, a Psalm of David. And this is how it goes. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me, him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear Though tens of thousands assail me on every side, arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now, as we can kind of figure out simply from the plain reading of that psalm, depending on, on which translation you're using. This is a psalm of, um, of David that was birthed out of a life experience that brought David to a place of fear as he was running for his life. And we know this, first of all, because there's a heading at the top that tells us that David was fleeing from his own son, Absalom. Now, this heading... Um, actually appears in the original Hebrew text. It's not something that was added in later on. So we know very clearly that this is the, the context of what is being communicated to us here. Now, what were the circumstances that led David to find himself in this position? Because David is revered as one of the fathers of the faith. You know, he was supposed to be um, a man after God's own heart. You know, he was the one who was able to slay Goliath the Philistine. Um, he was the one who brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And not only did David successfully rule over a unified Israel, but his reign also established a very powerful dynasty, whereby his own offspring would be blessed. And as we know, David played a very important role even in the lineage that would bring Jesus to us. And even as we consider David's rise to power from a very humble shepherd boy, we recognize God's hand on his life. What was it that brought him to this place? Now, the first aspect that we encounter in this psalm appears to be fear. He says, many, many 
Many are after me. Unsure of what would happen to him if he were to be caught. Now, I've heard it said that um, fear may very well be the very first emotion that we experience when we are born. Um, And fear may also very well be the very last emotion that we ever experience when we die. You know, consider a baby that is born, pushed out into this new environment with all of its different senses, different sounds, touches, um, smells, feelings, all of this, all of a sudden thrust on this baby, being maneuvered out of this nice, warm, cozy space. The very first emotion may very well be fear. And then at the point of death, um, to start losing one's grip on all of those senses again, to lose the sounds, to lose the touches, smells, the sights, they leave us also a very fearful moment. And so fear is something that we all have to deal with, and David was no exception despite being someone who was so highly favored by Yahweh. Now, what was it that drove fear into this mighty king? And to find that out, we actually have to go back a little bit. Um, David, um, in that time, um, he had a number of wives um, and sons with only one daughter. Polygamy was part of the culture of that time. Um, Now, in spite of the fact that David was a powerful statesman, he was a musician, a poet, a religious leader who found favor in the sight of God, as we read about repeatedly through Scripture, there were actually flaws in his character. And his darkest hour is detailed for us in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and these chapters outline David's affair with Bathsheba. But we actually have to fast forward past that event to a period later in David's life that relates more directly to the psalm. David had had apparently a, a beautiful daughter, and her name was Tamar, um, and Tamar's half-brother, remember he had, David had a, a few wives, and so the children would have been half-brother and half-sister to one another, depending on how that worked out. Now, Tamar's half-brother, his name was Amnon, and he was quite taken with his sister. He was drawn to her, attracted to her. He lusted for her. And when she wouldn't yield to him, when she didn't um, return the affection, if we could call it that, um, he raped her. And we read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14. And then Tamar's full brother, Absalom, when he found out about this horrible, violent deed, he was upset. He was outraged. And Absalom automatically expected that their father, David, would do something about this. 
But David did nothing. And perhaps that was due to David's own weakness in the area of lust or of fleshly desire. Perhaps it was related to that. But then as the story unpacks itself, Absalom would not be denied justice for his sister. Didn't accept the fact that David did nothing about it. And so what Absalom did was he he made a plan and he laid a plot and he had his half-brother Amnon killed. You read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 28. And this act that happened within the family brought great heartache in David's family. Can you imagine that? Half-brothers and sisters, the wives between one another, David as the father, the head, not actually even engaging with this terrible act or not showing the kind of care that a loving father ought to. And so as a result of this assassination, Absalom was forced to flee beyond the Jordan River quite far for asylum. And for three years, Absalom was in exile. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that David mourned for his son every day. Finally, Absalom was allowed to return back um, to Jerusalem, but even then, he still had this anger towards his father. And um, because of this, those around him said to Absalom that he wasn't permitted into his father's presence for, for two years more than that. And from the outset of Absalom's return into the household, Absalom had not moved on from this issue, this grudge that he held towards his father. And then Absalom also began to again make plans to get his father back. And those plans involved the seizure of his father's throne. Absalom wanted to overthrow David. And he wanted to take the kingdom rulership from David. But you know, kingdoms are not toppled overnight. Um, and so the rebel son Absalom, what he did was, he very stealthily, and as the Bible puts it, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he convinced those around David that David wasn't a good man. And he won them over onto his side. And so when the time was right, Absalom, with a very strong military force behind him that he was able to convince to join him, he declared himself to be the new king. And David then, when this happened, he fled from Jerusalem, and this is when he wrote this psalm. So it is in that moment with all of those emotions, all of the baggage that goes along with it, the broken um, family relations that David found, finds himself um, in this space and then he writes Psalm 3. And this is also around the time 
when David wrote Psalm 23, one of my, one of my favorites. And then all of this happened during the ending of David's career, and his son Absalom essentially formed this resistance army, and he staged a successful coup. I don't know if you guys are um, keeping your finger on the pulse of what's happening in Africa, Niger, there's a coup happening right now. So what's happening here in David's time is by no means um, old news or, or no longer the way that people deal with um, issues within governance. Um, and, and so what happened was David found himself in this space, having to flee his own house, his own city, and his own capital that he had established, and he runs into the hills with a few hundred people who um, we are told he has as an army of 12,000 foot soldiers are chasing after him through the Judean desert, through the foothills. And this is when he writes the psalm. So David begins the poem by first praying through the fears that he has. He says, how many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Or some translations have, there's no salvation for him in God now. Just look at, at the repeated words there. And, and we see what's scaring him the most right now is what he repeats three times over. How many people, 12,000 soldiers are after him. And so David, as he writes the psalm, he starts by identifying his fears. He says that there are many, many people pursuing him. But there's actually another layer to this fear that he is experiencing. And that extra layer of fear comes from the propaganda that Absalom is spreading about David. And David's enemies are saying that God is finished with David now. And this is what they are saying. We see there in verse 2, it says there is no salvation for him in God. Now, what they are saying with that is not that they don't believe um, in God. Um, David's enemies are not saying that they don't think that God still delivers people in general. Or, or what they're saying is God is done with David. And they believe that there is no more favor or salvation for David left in God anymore. And this is a very different kind of attack that brings a different kind of fear to David. It's not a physical attack on his life. This is an attack on David's identity and on David's sense of self and his significance and his status. And so I can imagine that David would have spent much time just assessing where he was with God. And what series of events would have brought him to this point? 
the poor decisions he would have made and the repercussions of those decisions, how his actions actually affected the actions of others. And so in the light of this propaganda, he would have wondered, is God really done with me? Has God really turned his back on me in the way that people are saying and he's hearing through the grapevine of the little villages where he would have been running and passing through hearing this news about these people who are after him and people saying, God is done with this guy. And he's asking himself, is God really finished with me? Because David has a clear identifiable threat of these 12,000 people who want to kill him, but the propaganda of his enemies is eating away at his very sense of self, his status as king, his status and position as a father, someone who had been favored by Yahweh. And to him it would have felt like all of that was now falling apart. And so he might have been asking himself as well, who am I now? Am I even of any worth? What meaning does my life have if I'm not king? What meaning does my life have if I cannot be with my family? What meaning does my life have if Yahweh truly has turned his back on me? You know, fear and anxiety has the potential to destroy us. I think that's why we are told 365 times throughout Scripture not to fear. But let's have a look at how David prays through this fear that he has. In doing so, he needed to exercise his faith. As he had in his mind this, these messages running through that God may be done with him, but he also had, on the other hand, God's promises. Promises like the fact that he would never leave him, nor forsake him. And so David starts by saying, Yahweh, you are a shield about me, in verse 3. And we kind of start to see a shift in David's tone here. David moves his focus and his attention from his circumstances onto God and onto the character of Yahweh. And this is part of how David processes his fear and his anxiety. He acknowledges the fear. He acknowledges his anxiety. But then he moves into the next part which is moving his focus onto God. And he doesn't allow himself to linger on the negative. He identifies the source of his fear, but then he shifts his focus onto God. And David uses then a military metaphor by comparing God to a shield in verse 3. That is an artist's impression there of what a Judean soldier would have looked like in those times. They had those little 
round shields that they would carry. Now, when we think about a shield, we think that it's something that is used to prevent an attack from getting to you, but there's a bit more that David is reflecting on here. You know, you put on or you use a shield because you know bad things are coming. And what a shield does is it protects the most vital part of who you are from being injured. But a shield doesn't prevent the attack from coming. And this is the important bit. David recognizes that the attack will come. But he prays a statement of thanksgiving. Based on God's promise that God is all around him like this shield. And so David, instead of relying on his feelings or his emotions or his anxieties, he acknowledges rather the promises of God. He acknowledges God's presence and he decides to stand firm on that. You know, in our, in our lives, attacks will come, undoubtedly. And if you've lived a cushy life up until now, you will face attacks later on. We can't stop that. But we affirm to ourselves in prayer, although we may feel anxious or fearful, that God is our shield all about us. And that the fact that he is all around us in a very real way should be enough in the way that in that moment it appeared to be enough for David. Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, verses 17 and 18, he says, Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. We see there that Jesus himself acknowledges that we will face adversity. Adversity doesn't go away. But he is always our shield around us. He then goes further and says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. Now, this is one of those lines that we could maybe also just glaze over. As you know, this is one of those things that Christians would say, Now he's my glory. Um, but there's actually a little bit, something a little bit deeper that David is reflecting on here in the words that he uses. In the original Hebrew, the word for glory is kavod. And kavod also means honor, it means respect, reverence, and glory. But the direct translation for kavod actually just means weight. It means heaviness, but in a good sense. Now that word kavod carries the same sense, the same essence of how, of how we use the word heavy today. And so when we say to one another, when we hear news, um, when, the, when New Zealand heard about how heavily they lost, 
heavy, many, many, many points against them. <laughs> um, they would have said, wow, that's, that's heavy. That, that's serious. That's substantial. That's, that's weighty. You know, that's kavot. It's heavy. And so for David, obviously from the rags to riches story that defined him as this poor, no-name shepherd boy becoming this great king, someone who came to have kavod, someone who came to have weight, substance, power, influence, and now to be fleeing for his life, this was life-changing. Because now, all of a sudden, David doesn't have that kavod anymore. Any illusion that he was a successful king, a successful father of a large family, a warrior who had conquered many, a warrior who slayed a giant, and someone having a kingdom under their control, all of that now was shattered. And so David finds himself at this low point of his life and he recognizes something that he had lost. There was a time in his life when David exalted God, when he exalted Yahweh as his kavod, as his weight, as his glory. God was his significance. His identity was found in Yahweh. Meaning was found there, but he lost all of that when he became entangled in sin. And when he got entangled in sin, there was a shift that happened in David, and it was no longer God who was at his center, but David replaced God with his own wealth. He replaced Yahweh with his own power, with his own status. His own significance had now become his weight, his glory. And David became his own kavod. He came to believe that he had all that he needed in himself. And so David confesses here as he prays through his fears and his anxieties that he had misplaced his kavod. He had misplaced his glory. And so he says, Yahweh, you are the only substance that's important and significant about me. And in that moment, as David repents, he restores Yahweh to being in the place of glory again in his life at this moment as he prays. And David admits he took what God gave him and he ruined it. And he made terrible decisions. And so he directs his attention away from himself, acknowledging that it is God, it is Yahweh, 
who lifts his head high. And then we see why David feels that he can be so confident about God's answer to his prayer. In verse 4, he says, I called out to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy mountain. As David mentions the holy mountain, he is specifically referring to the place of worship in Jerusalem, which would have been established on the highest hill. And it is what happens on this holy mountain that is of significance to David. That is what Jerusalem would possibly have looked like in the time of David's reign. The temple had not been built yet, but there would have been a place of worship at the top, at the highest point there where people would have gathered to worship. And it was in this place of worship where sins are covered by the blood of animal sacrifices. It is at the tabernacle space where God forgave the sins of his people and where Yahweh received worship from his beloved children. And this is David acknowledging that he had sinned. Yet, God is glorious enough to forgive him from his holy mountain. David then displays some raw emotion as he says that God strikes all his enemies on the cheek and he breaks their teeth. Um, and David could have hidden this emotion from God, but he actually doesn't. He makes himself vulnerable here before God again, in some sense expressing a little bit of anger perhaps. And so as a profound act of faith, he commits his enemies over to God's justice and he asks God to deal with that. And then it is only in the seventh verse that David makes a very clear request of God. And the rest of this prayer consists mainly of statements of praise to God and acknowledgments of who Yahweh is. As we draw to a close, you know, at times we ask ourselves, how will we make it? You know, we feel to ourselves, I think, I, you know, I, I didn't do good enough. Um, I come short. I don't have what it takes. Um, is there any hope? I th I, it feels like I, I really messed up. And I think this is one of those psalms that calls us to pause for a moment and not become enveloped by our emotions or our feelings, not to allow them to overrun us, but to acknowledge that they are there to acknowledge that they are an important part of us and, and of who we are, but then to invite God into that space. And to invite God even into the trouble that we have gotten ourselves into in the way that David did. 
And we ask God to be with us and to help us work through those moments or those times of difficulty. And so we may feel overwhelmed by whether it be financial or economic situations. Um, it might just be really bad decisions that we have made um, concerning possibly really important relationships. Or maybe the difficulties of holiness in an unholy time. Those things might overwhelm us. But I think we learn here as we work our way through the psalm that we can learn something from David here as he demonstrates for us how we process through that.